Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I mean, come on, no one plans to get sick. And yet, here we are. My name is Matthew Zachary. I survived cancer, a stroke, and COVID-19, and I'm still here. I also survived our broken healthcare system, and I want to help you survive it too. So let's go make healthcare suck less together, because we're all out of patience. Hello, friends. Welcome back. Quick reminder, as always, before we get started, if you like the show and you're on Apple Podcasts, leave a like, a rating, a review, or don't. Either way, today's theme is Don't Start a Charity, a Cautionary Tale, or So You Already Started a Charity, Calgon, Take Me Away, with my special guest, Elizabeth Wolf, veteran, nonprofit consultant, unmatched Sherpa guide in the business management organizational culture of charity. Full disclosure, Liz has saved my ass more times than you know. As strategic counsel to stupid cancer during the latter half of my tenure, she's one of my best friends in the world. You're in for a treat. Man, I've been looking forward to this show for how long have I known you? Anyway, don't start a charity with Liz Wolf, how the sausage is made, and if you've already made the sausage, what to do with it. Welcome to Out of Patience. Am I supposed to talk now? That was your cue. Thanks for being here. Whatever. <laughs> Monty, what okay. do we got for her? <laughs> What's behind the green door? Yes. <laughs> it is a pleasure to be here. I have been waiting for this pretty much all my life. Oh, my God. A real... Never meet your heroes, though. I'm going to ruin you. You've known me a long time, so I've, I've already, already ruined you. I've already met you. <laughs> well down that ruined rabbit hole. For, for the listeners, Liz and I go back. Uh, she saved my life uh, professionally several times. I owe her many things. She's watched my kids grow up. She's a big sister to me after God knows how everything happened in the last 15 years. But this is a very special show because we've been kvetching for years about how difficult it is to run a nonprofit, let alone start a nonprofit. And the goal for today, for this exciting episode of Please Don't Do This, is to really get a sense of what it means, what it takes, what's at stake. And that it isn't some willy-nilly thing to do because the IRS makes it way too easy to get a tax status. Is that correct, Liz? I would say that's pretty correct. So you got started in the 90s. Remember the 90s? No. (laughs) I tend to brush those off too. But what first got you into the nonprofit universe? Well, I've been a nonprofiteer for my entire career, except for one very brief foray into the for-profit world, which I like to call the dark side. I believe very strongly that being a nonprofit person is something that you're sort of born to. 
I, I don't know that it ever occurred to me not to do work that felt good to me and also did good for others. So for me, it was just a very natural way of life. And I think what drew me to do what I do now is having spent 25 plus years in the nonprofit space working for other people, observing and learning, I knew that I could take all of those skills and all of that experience and apply it and help leaders be better leaders and organizations be better organizations. So it was a nice path to get me to where I am today. It's like the opposite of Rolling Stone gathers no moss. Like we are so moss laden at this point with experience. <laughs> exactly. So much moss. <laughs> That's our band name. We're so much moss. Good night, Cleveland. Oh, my God. I, I digress. Sorry to the listeners. So in the 90s, in the nonprofit space, there were many sectors. There was HIV. There was cancer. There was drunk driving. How did you decide where you would plug in? I was pretty much plucked into the, uh, into the oncology space. I had been doing more generalist work and working for larger organizations, doing big picture public health oriented nonprofit work. And I found myself jobless at one point in the late 90s. And the next thing I know, I'm working for a breast cancer organization. And it was at the pretty much close to the peak of the breast cancer, everything pink ribbon movement. Everybody was talking about breast cancer and Komen and all kinds of organizations that were popping up to serve this population. And I found myself working for an organization which has since closed, it closed actually in the mid 2000s. That was my start. I found a niche. I made a lot of contacts, a lot of friends, many people who I still am very close with. And it really was very formative to all of the work that I've done since. And today, like we think pink ribbons and ich, but it can't be understated from a historical perspective how important it was in the late 90s for the breast cancer. I want to say it was like the act of HIV. There was like rallies and anger to force the system. And if that hadn't been the culture at the time, wristbands and ribbons be damned, we would not be where we are today. Could you explain that? Well, the breast cancer world very much took the AIDS movement to heart, uh, especially in the area of activating over drug development. You know, that whole activist kind of spirit carried over into, you know, all of the advocacy efforts that, that came from that. And in addition to that, there was a tremendous amount of money being poured into the breast cancer space from companies and corporations that wanted to support breast cancer. So cause-related marketing and, and corporate social responsibility side, that was pretty big at the end of the 90s and into the 2000s. So it was a really active time in the breast cancer world. Yeah. And again, I, I want to reinforce what I said before about reinforcing that, you know, this happened so long ago, it's hard to get perspective on what it meant at the time. There was no internet. There was no social media. There was just like people gathered in person. They had the three days and the five days and the one days and mass gatherings, like social good protests, raising tons of money. 
it must have been extraordinary by comparison to how things are done today. It's funny because when you're going through it, I don't think you realize how extraordinary it is. But looking back, it was one of the highlights of my career, certainly to be part of all of that and and to recognize that that kind of you know real activism that generates everything that comes after it doesn't happen all the time. I mean, we didn't know that at the time that that was what was happening, but it was. Yeah. And I, I would contend again from a, let's take the cultural anthropology nerd hat for a second. I think that level of citizen activism and, and literally rallying millions of people to one specific thing paved the way to recognize that so many things could happen because of that. What I mean is it gave way to Livestrong as this national unity platform of survivorship that then started to talk about other diseases like testicular and colon cancer. And then Katie Couric got involved when her husband unfortunately passed away. Do you think that the implications of the breast cancer community writ large in the 90s became a cultural effect in this country? Oh, most definitely. I mean, people refer to that all the time as very important to all of the subsequent kinds of advocacy efforts that come up. And I know that people were forming organizations then, but I think that it really took off after that. Knowing what we're here to talk about today, it, we can point our fingers at, at the breast cancer movement and blame them, but I don't know that it was solely breast cancer. I think it was a, a perfect storm of activism that was happening around issues like survivorship and like patient care and access to treatment and things like that. Fights that we're still fighting now and issues that we're still grappling with. But, you know, what happened as a as a result of that was, you know, the creation of of all of these people who wanted their own little area that they could fight from. Really was the Lutheranism versus Church of England. Like, you're doing it this way, but we want our napkins to be blue. And this cottage industry of like don't piss on my lawn because only I can do this this way without airing any dirty laundry. Everyone was trying to face the same direction, but it did create so many splinters. And then it became really easy to get a 5013 tax status that it went up diluting so much. Don't you feel? I think that that's two kind of separate things. You know, the, the legal side of it, you know, being easy to do doesn't mean that you should do it. And we'll talk a little bit more about that a little later. But I think that everybody felt like they had to tell their story. And it wasn't, in some ways, it was a very collegial group and a very collaborative atmosphere. But in other ways, it was a very selfish time where you know everyone thought like their story and their take on it was the story and the take. And that was not necessarily the case. Yeah, which brings us to what we'd like to talk about is you get very passionate about something you care about. And typically, let's focus in oncology just for the sake of this, this particular conversation. You get sick, your experience is horrible, and you want to make sure the next person's experience isn't as horrible. So your knee jerk is, oh, I'll just start a charity, raise money and do this. I hate to make it sound so binary and linear, but I, I've gotten the impression over so many years that that's kind of just what people think. Well, I mean, you should know. I did, <laughs> did it. it. <laughs> Guilty as charged. Bum, bum, bum. But I feel like I did it with 
a degree of conscious ignorance. And I don't want to dunk on, you know, like the bad things happen to people charity, which is, I think, very emotionally done in the moment when it's necessary. And I was, you know this, and my listeners to an extent know this, I was incubated, I was curated, I was taught and trained for three years by the likes of these historic luminaries that we've mentioned before, Randy Rosenberg, Andy von Eschenbach, Selma Schimmel. I didn't think it was necessary to do it until I realized I could for a purpose. I wasn't in this grieving moment of if only, and I'm not defending myself. Yes, I did it. I'm here. But I I felt I had more intent and purpose and conscious intent. Well, I also think you had a niche that you knew needed to be addressed, that there wasn't anything there. I think it's very different when people also consciously ignorant don't look around and say, hey, this happened to me. I wonder if it happened to somebody else. And they started an organization that I could learn from or help or add to or raise money for or any number of those things. It's that mine is the best. My story is the best. And I'm going to do this regardless of what's going on around them that has led us to this point of saying, don't do this. There's, you know, it's a very crowded space. There's a, there's a lot of competition for resources and even people at this point. And I think that your story is a slightly different one. Well, I mean, I try to march to a beat of a different drummer, but like you said, you don't know you're doing it when you're doing it. And here we are all these years later. I feel it was the mistake that went right because I didn't know what I was doing. All I knew in that moment in 2004 through 2006 is I was one of the few agency creatives that could build a brand. And to me, that's another thing I've given many speeches about. You have given many speeches about. Our contemporaries have spoken about, which is the idea that to say nonprofit is, it's like syllables. It doesn't matter. You're starting a business. It happens to be a nonprofit. But if you don't think about it as a business with a plan and a brand and a budget and growth strategy, you're doomed to fail if you don't appreciate the unique dynamics that make a nonprofit different than a private sector. Would you talk about that? Well, I think to go back to you as the example, not only were you lucky, but you're also very smart because you understand the concept of nonprofit as business. It's not just you know a side hustle. Uh, many people think that it is, and they are very sorry. So for anyone listening who's considering and has not yet perhaps started a nonprofit, let's go through some teachable moments to consider. Where would you start, Liz? Don't. (laughs) No. (laughs) Teachable moments. Well, I mean, now that we have the blessing of the internet, which, you know, way back when, when I started, we did not have, you can actually look around really, really well and see what is happening out there in your desired space. So that would be my first strong recommendation is to is to look around and see, is anybody already in this space? And if they are, what are they doing? What are they doing well? What might I do differently? What could I help them with? And you know, if there's room there for something or someone else, 
The other thing I would say is if, you know, many times people found organizations and it's, you know, a bit of an ego thing, I would also recommend that you leave your ego at the door because it isn't really going to serve you very well. Well said. I would also contend that you not just Google other organizations that may exist in your space, but Google how to start a nonprofit. <laughs> that would be helpful as well. There are intricacies and nuances and lots of sedimentary layers of what do you do? What do your documents look like? What are bylaws? Who are your three board members? How are you getting funded? Are you Bill Gates? Probably not. You're probably not Bill Gates. Where's your money coming from? Are you begging on the corner with a grinder monkey? Are you writing grants? Have you ever written a grant for a pharma portal? Buy some wine. What else you got? I would say all of the above. And don't underestimate any of those things. I mean, you just ran through them pretty quickly, but each one of them separately is extremely important and time consuming. So again, this is not a side hustle. This is, this is a full-time job and it can be, you know, many times extremely gratifying, but many times extremely frustrating. Back with our guest after the break. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. All right, Liz, part two, we're going to talk about, so you've already started one and you have no idea what you're in store for, or you're already in the tornado and just need help. This is where you need Liz Wolf in your life. Here's why. Here's why. Well, I've made 
this part of my career, my post working for somebody else's career into uh, that of a nonprofit consultant. And the thing that I really love doing is looking at what nonprofits are doing and helping them do it better, more effectively, more efficiently, more impactfully, with better leadership, with better board, with an infrastructure, with improved and enhanced fundraising streams, pretty much everything that you need in order to survive and thrive. That's what I love doing. And that's what I do. So I really shouldn't be doing this podcast because I shouldn't be talking about what you shouldn't do, because when you do things and you do them wrong, you need me. And so I don't really want to shoot myself in the foot any more than I already have. We don't want to ruin the demand market or destroy a demand market for Liz Wolf. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. So my two cents, people ask me, well, how the hell did you, how did you do it? The joke is, of course, it was a huge success overnight that just took 15 years. But truth be told, I didn't earn a salary for three years. I was had no staff for three years. I did this and I had the privilege of throwing myself into this whole hog when I see so many people lovingly half-assed it with a foot in their full-time job and trying to get this done, and they just don't have time. So what justice are you doing to your mission? And by the way, do you have a mission, a vision? Do you have a deck, a website, normal things that you just need? But I'll tell you, and I, Liz, I want your comments because you were there right with me. <laughs> Here's the magic secret sauce, stupid cancer was unlike nearly every other nonprofit organization I've ever heard of or worked with because, drum roll, we were never donor dependent. I feel like I'm at the airport saying, lose weight, ask me how. However, <laughs> all of that is true. And at the same time, it was like many, if not all, startup or young organizations in so many ways. So, you know, so many of the problems and so many of the challenges and so many of the walls that you hit and so much of the time that I was holding your hand telling you that it was all going to be okay, it was all going to be okay, but it was also very typical. But yes, there were some definitely some significant differences in how stupid cancer came about. But I think the important thing for people to know if they're thinking of starting nonprofits or if they already have is if I had a nickel for, you know, all of the times that I encountered any and or all of the problems that you just talked about, I'd have a lot of nickels. These problems are across the board quite typical and quite common and not necessarily intractable. So, you know, there is hope, there is light at the end of that tunnel. And it does feel like a tunnel. I'm sure you'll attest to the fact that sometimes it felt like you were slogging through. And that's not pleasant. It wasn't pleasant. And you you taught me about the nonprofit plateaus and that these are very normal. And you don't realize you're getting it. Oh, my God, we made a half million dollars this year. And then you're making half a million dollars for three years until you make a million dollars. And then you wait three more years to make $2 million. It isn't, I mean, like you look at the Dow Jones over a hundred years. Yeah, it goes up, but you know, month to month, year to year, it's pretty flat, you know, unless of course your GameStop as a recording of this episode today. 
But where I'm getting at is, is you have to have managed expectations as a leader. And Les, let's talk about this because I own this. I'm not a people person. I don't like managing people. I'm not good with volunteers. People will be nodding their heads if they know me by listening to the show. You have to have good communication and people skills if you're going to have employees. Leadership is hard. And let's think about it this way. If you're going into this having been something else, and then you decide you're going to found this organization and this is going to be your thing, you might not ever have been a leader. It's not like you're born knowing what to do in any of this. And I think that that is the thing that many founders find extremely challenging is how do I do this when it's more than just me? How do I make this grow and then deal with the fact that I am then the boss? And learning how to do that and figuring out how to do that is can be a really painful process. Right, which brings us to the segment where we channel our two heroes, Vule and Dan Pilata, who I've mentioned many times. I've had Dan on the show twice. Liz, did you knew of Dan before I knew of Dan, correct? I knew of Dan. We met briefly uh, during the breast cancer space time in my in my career because that was when he had invented the Avon breast cancer rides and walks, and he was becoming the cause marketing guru. What has carried over from that is he explains philanthropy better than anybody I've seen. And, you know, for for the masses, he's just the go-to person for explaining philanthropy. And, you know, in terms of the other gurus, for me, I would certainly say Vule is one of them because he writes with such humor about all of the craziness of the nonprofit space, but he also gets down and dirty and serious about some of the real issues that the nonprofit space is facing. Uh, additions to that for me are Jim Collins, who wrote a seminal book, Good to Great, and has written several books that riff off of the themes in Good to Great uh, about how companies succeed and how important leadership is. And he's my go-to for pretty much everything. And more currently, but as important to me, is Brene Brown, because she writes about leadership and she talks about leadership in a way that's just really special and organic and easy to grasp and with stories that nobody can beat. Right. And rather than doing our own fangirl, fanboy on Dan Pilata, I will put a link in the description to the show I did with him. And you can visit danpilata.org. And Vule has a blog called Nonprofit with balls is that what it's called no it used to be it used to be nonprofit with balls now it's nonprofit af we'll put links to that as well Uh, i i want to drop just another um sort of a life hack to the cancer founders and executive directors out there that back in the day the pharma companies could just give money away it was kind of unregulated wild west uh, I think I got a check for hundred grand, like at coffee at Starbucks. Like that doesn't happen anymore because of good regulations. But in terms of understanding the nuances 
and almost like the micro minutia of relationship cultivation based on pipeline. How do you navigate a grant portal? Yeah, this is kind of scare tactics for people. But at the end of the day, there's such a subspecialty that no one can have coming into this industry that you just have to learn. Liz, you are the master of wine and grant portal. Go forth. Well, I hate a grant portal, but it's a necessity of life, unfortunately. And yes, I'm fondly recalling the days where you would talk to one of your pharma people about what you were planning to do. And the next day, a check would appear magically on your desk to take care of whatever that program or that website or whatever it was that you wanted to develop. Those days are long gone, sadly, but uh, there's a lot of support out there, pharma support, corporate support, but the looking for it, you know, really the, the magic that has to happen in order for your groups to succeed. I'd have to say fundraising is challenging even under the best of circumstances. And if you're not a born fundraiser, you're going to have some issues with that. But I don't think that that's the thing that should either stop you or start you. It's just a piece of the puzzle. And it's, again, it's a teachable moment. It's something you should be thinking about before you jump into the pool is sort of when are they going to put more water in the pool? So let's talk about transition and um, what do they call them? Succession planning or Succession. something? Because mm -hmm. I, I recall when I was in L.A., on my way home from my, I think my third consecutive trip to LA three weekends in a row. And I just decided I can't do this anymore. I texted my dad and he sent me this, you know, in his ultimate uncle Lou, mayor Lou wisdom that something like stepping down is hard, but knowing when is harder. And this is kind of a, a very small, polite dig to people that don't know when it's time to quit. But I feel like I made the right decision at the right time. You were there to support me. You were my second phone call after Jessica, my wife, and you kind of did the share moonstruck Nicolas Cage snap out of it thing. But then you realized that I was serious and you were so pivotal in helping me appreciate the gravity of someone of my visibility and legacy stepping down that it's almost like a Harvard business study in doing it right. Can you talk to the listeners about how you approached this massive transition? Sure. So it might seem incongruous since we were talking a little bit before about how to start an organization and what to be thinking of to then be switching gears and talking about succession and transition. You're like, hey, I just got here. I'm not <laughs> leaving yet. But really, succession and transition should be on the minds of organizations from day one, because honestly, you never know whether it's a, a situation like yours where it was time for you to go for a, a variety of reasons, or if, God forbid, something happens to you or someone that you care about and it's necessary for you to pull back or leave for whatever reason, that organization, your organization has to be ready for that. So this is something that most organizations never think about until they absolutely have to. And at that point, it's really a little late. But I, I think 
something that you probably know is I was thinking about succession and transition before you were thinking about succession and transition. So in my head, I was prepared and I was prepared to implement what needed to be implemented for stupid cancer to go through that particular rite of passage. It's probably the most significant thing that can happen to an organization. And if it's not handled well, especially when it's involving a founder, it can be a real disaster. Um, I am proud and happy to report that Stupid Cancer's transition was not a disaster. It's actually been a great success and things are going swimmingly. And it seems like it was the right move for you. So I'm really happy about that. Yeah. And I talk about how, you know, we had planned a year, but we got it done in like five months. And this how to de-Velcro me like well <laughs> without breaking everything from these the layers of infrastructure over all that time. It went phenomenally well. And you led that and it was extraordinary. And I'm grateful for it. And I'm beyond thrilled that it is stupid cancer still there doing amazing things. Uh, I want to wrap by not just saying that you're the greatest life hack a nonprofit founder or leader could ever need or want, but do you have one or two nuggets for people listening that are struggling, especially during COVID as we tape this, on the is it worth it? What should I do? Should I pause? It's a lot there, but any specific takeaways? Because I, I want to do another show with you about this. Well, we have a lot more to talk about, clearly, because we didn't even talk about the role of the board, which is a huge thing for organizations. And it's something that I really feel strongly and passionately about. So we'll save that for next time. But I think to sum up, if that's possible, is there's definitely space still left for people who feel that they want and need to start an organization and you know that they have a cause that they really believe in. And there's ways of, of being successful. I, I don't want to be a dolly downer about it because I think that it's absolutely the case. But I don't want anybody to go into it thinking that it isn't hard, hard work and that a nonprofit isn't a business just like anything else. And if you could say to yourself, well, you know, I'm not going to go out and start a business, then you have no business starting a nonprofit. Right. Well said. Well said. Well, again, I think our listeners are going to be interested in you and I reconvening for a very special episode of Silver Spoons, where we talk about nonprofit board management and culture. So I think we can end it here. We'll pick up then. Liz Wolf, thank you so much for joining me. Long time coming. My big sister, I love you. Thank you. Thank you. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com. 